Let me go here. Well, Game of Thrones, that's the title of the series. And you, to be honest, I've never read the books or watched the series, so I'm not an expert on it. Um, so do forgive my ignorance if, if we talk about this subject from this point of view. But I'm looking at it uh, from the biblical point of view today. So all about authority, about rulers, about the games we play around the theme of power and about our little thrones. Well, to start off with some good news. There is a big, big throne <clears throat> in heaven. And we read about it in Revelation chapter 4. From verse 1 I'm reading, After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the fir first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. There is no vacuum in, of power in this universe. There is a throne, and somebody is firmly seated on it. So that's the good news, because if you've ever seen any situations where there hasn't been any leadership, any power firmly fitted into place, it can be a very, very nasty Sight. So if you've ever lived in a country without leadership uh, or with uh, various leaderships trying all to lead at one time, it's very, very difficult. So to have actually a throne that is filled is good news, and especially good news as we know it's filled by God Almighty who is kind, who is loving, who is uh, defined as love in, it, in himself. So that's an amazingly good news to start off with, when we talk about rulers and about authority, God is on his throne and uh, there is no battle of thrones at all. You see, God is not at all uh, you know, intimidated by the evil of this world. He's not intimidated by the devil. He's not in competition to anyone. And the devil never had any place before God where God had to think hard, what am I going to do now? God is in control and always has been. And so that's incredibly good news for your lives and for my life if we're thinking about authority and about power. Now, we do know that there are lots of games played around thrones, around our own throne. There's a lot of fight and competition going on in the society we live in. Just think about where you work every day. It's not an easy sight, is it? There are all sorts of dynamics uh, that compete within your company or within the setting that you work in. It's incredible what happens in staff rooms. Sometimes the little bit things, you know. Sometimes a whole group of staff can uh, undermine the leadership of a certain place. Just a little example. I, I was in the army at some point <clears throat> in my life and... Uh, so we had to march to the tune of the sergeant, which is a very normal thing to do. You know, you kind of march to lunch. That's what you had to do. Nobody can walk by themselves. Uh, you have to walk as a unit. A unit is about 30 men. And uh, so you all have to march in line. And you have to stand in the right spot. Otherwise, if you have two small people in front of you, you can't march properly. You kick them in the... No, yeah. Anyway, so it's, it's a science in itself. And that's why you go to the army to learn it, how to walk to lunch. And uh, so that's what we did that day. And it was, I was stationed in Bavaria, beautiful place. And you know, lunch in Bavaria is really good. So you have 30 men that are really hungry and they just want to get to lunch. 
And so they called us out of the barracks, and we had to line up in our formation, 30 men. And, you know, everything, every step you do is done under a command, under the power of the sergeant that talks over you. So we all knew that, but we were just about to undermine his power and authority. So we, he didn't know that. So we didn't know that at the time. It was a very spontaneous, improvised thing. So we all stood to attention, turned around, and marched to our lunch hall, but our lunch hall was not at the end of the road. There was a bush at the end of the road. We had to turn right in order to go to our lunch hall. At that moment, our sergeant forgot the command for turning the whole unit round into the right direction, which we, of course, saw as a great opportunity to undermine his authority. And we kept marching into the bush, and the whole shibul ended up into a huge pile of men, making him look absolutely stupid, which made him be absolutely annoyed at us. And he said, didn't anyone teach you that if you come towards a, uh, something that's hindering your way, some obstacle, you sort of march on, on the point? Well, nobody had told us at that time, which we now know, and so everybody gets to lunch much safer. Anyway, the, power we ga the games we play around power are quite amazing. We, we find our ways to get under people's skin. We find our ways to kind of snicker and talk behind people's backs during staff meetings because we just want you know to show that we are not quite under their authority or we like to actually use our power over other people so that's where we're at but you see the game that we play with each other is the game of what uh, René Girard calls mimetic desire we are kind of copying what other people are doing we desire according to the desire of another. That is to say, the eyes of another teach us who we are by teaching us what we want. Advertising has got that off to a T. They show you what you ought to desire, and then you get it, and by teaching you, uh, you know, who you are, they teach you what you want. So they say you're a sporty kind of person, so you want the new set of golf clubs. Or, you know, I meet Dave and his lovely Land Rover, and suddenly the desire in me starts to happen. Yeah, I copy his desire for a Land Rover, and I buy myself a Land Rover, which is fine if there are two Land Rovers. Trouble is, if there's only one. Then, you see, starts the violence between us, and the desire rises us up in order to unleash our violence on each other. At some point, we are forming groups around one another. People are obviously joining the group where they think they're going to win the Land Rover in the end, which uh, is, of course, Dave, in that sense. <laughs> anyway, so this, you see the dynamics? This is just um, anthropology, which is actually how people talk about, or how we talk about human beings. And it's interesting, not only talking about theology, but listening to God, how he talks about human beings, God's anthropology, which is very, very interesting. And that's what we're going to do today. We're looking at the Bible and what God says about us. <clears throat> so the only question is, you know, when we're learning from one another, which other do we learn from? The rivalistic desire known as the world, where we are rivals all the time, now, Jesus has got, or Paul wrote it down in, in Philippians, has got something interesting to say about that. He says uh, in Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, what about that sort of statement for a mission statement becoming powerful and strong and authoritative? 
counting others more significant than yourself? What would your company look like if you run it that way? What would your customers feel like if they kind of feel they are the ones that are more significant than your goal that you have set in order for, uh, you know, to, to sell or whatever you do? So interesting, do nothing from rivalry. Why is Paul picking up on that? Because he realizes that Jesus on the cross has dismantled and disarmed this power of the world, how we function, this desire, how we copy one another, and how we then unleash our violence. And he became the victim of this all, out of his own choice. Interesting that he did that. So, God wants us to see. It's very interesting. Jesus often says, see. And so, in the scripture that we're going to look at today, in uh, Mark <clears throat> chapter 10, you know, I'm going to read here from verse 33. Jesus is saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Would you like to go to Jerusalem? Jesus' way to live his authority is to face the cup that he's about to drink. The cup where he's emptying himself completely. And after uh, those days, he will after three days, he will rise. That's kind of the last sentence in that block. But it begins with see. And he wants us to see because it's hard for us to see properly. We see in frameworks. We see in the framework, preaching makes my nose run, sorry. Well, that, that few things, you know, food and preaching. Um, no, no. One of those things, my wife always says, you know, oh, you, you ought to get tissue. You know, some big preachers have big tissues. I ought to get one. <clears throat> anyway, here we go. The thing that Jesus is showing his disciples is the way up is the way down. It's an inverse kingdom we're living in. Completely different. You see, our society as a church is completely different. You come to one of our meetings. The other day I was invited uh, to, to a big prize uh, giving and, and afterwards there was a little meeting with a bit of wine and people mingling and there were all these important people, professors and politicians and so on, you know, and I didn't have a clue who was who. And, you know, you're on your guard because you can say some dumb things, you know, and you don't want to be known for being completely stupid. But you see, actually, in the church, we always start our meetings with the sort of Tell me where you're from, you know, testimony type of thing. And the, the Christians tell all the stupid things they were into before they met Jesus. How freeing is that? Just imagine you have a cocktail party and not everybody's introducing all their titles and their achievements, but they're introducing their stu most stupidest moments. But that's the society we live in as a church. But our, the kingdom is bigger than the church. The church is not the kingdom of God, you see. But the church is on earth, the seed and beginning of that kingdom. That's the beginning. But the kingdom is much bigger. 
And the, the authority and the rulership that Jesus is inviting us to is much bigger than our kind of little framework that we have. And this is what Jesus wants his disciples to see. He says, see. And then he tells them what's going to happen to him. And then it goes on. After all this incredible heavy news of Jesus being uh, you know, beaten and uh, mocked and all of that, two disciples talk to him. Now, what would they say? Something like, oh, Jesus, that's terrible news. Do you, are you sure? Do you want to go to Jerusalem? No, they're actually much more like us. <laughs> they have more themselves on their minds. They go, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Does that remind you of your children? Sometimes coming to you saying, don't say no to my request, just grant it immediately, and then I tell you what I want. So teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus very kindly says, you know, what do you want me to do for you? That's a, that's a, a Jesus question. Did you notice he often asked that question? What do you want me to do for you? Very servant-minded question, a way of authority. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with baptism with which I am baptized? Are you able? See, Jesus doesn't have anything against James and John. He doesn't mind them sitting next to him. But he knows that a throne requires an incredible prize. The authority that Jesus is about to uh, you know, dish out is, is costly. He just talked about it. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem, and that's what's going to happen to me. It's way down. And the cup that I have to drink is a very, very costly cup. Jesus talks about the cup of kenosis, the self-emptying, of, of emptying himself completely. So that's quite tricky, isn't it? How can he do that? How can he say that to them? Are you able to drink that cup that I drink? Will you be able to immerse yourself in letting go of everything that is about you? Well, the disciples came up with the answer very quickly. They said to him, we are able. Well, isn't it great that God doesn't mind when we say stupid things? He's very gracious and very kind. And he says, Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or on my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Typical scenario. You know, they start being really annoyed with those two and thinking, oh, who do they think they are that they just... You know, go to Jesus, want to sit on the throne, look at them. What they don't realize is that they're still caught in the same mimetic desire. They would like actually to be there too. They just don't admit it. They're just on the other side now and saying, who do they think they are? So that is incredible. You see, what Christianity conquers 
is the pagan way of organizing the world. Christianity is not just dealing with a few sins, a few wrongs. Jesus on the cross is uncovering a whole system and is trying to make you see that the way we run things is completely off the rocker. He goes on to speak about this, and Jesus calls them to himself, and he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and they, their great ones, exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. But it shall not be so among you. Authority, rulership within the church, within the kingdom of God, looks completely different. And I'm trying to show you what that's going to look like. He's saying, are you able to drink the cup of complete self-emptying? Are you able to do that? And prophetically, he's saying to the disciples, you will be able to do it, but you're going to have power to do it. We're talking about the Holy Spirit this morning, and the Holy Spirit is the great enabler, and he's going to give you the ability to stand in this world exercising authority that looks completely different to whatever else is going on in this world, and he will give you the strength to do so. He will give you the strength to let others go first, to make others shine, to make others grow, to further other people, and therefore displaying what God's heart is for this world. Jesus is the example. I came not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Let me talk about this little word ransom here. I don't know exactly how you would translate ransom for yourself. But it kind of the way it's used in, our, in, in, in the English language kind of gives you a feeling of, you know, Jesus is paying someone in order to get you back. And that leaves you in a troubled place. Let me explain why. You see, it goes either one way. Either Jesus is paying the devil, and that makes him not so powerful, doesn't it? If God has to pay the devil, is if God is in debt over you to the devil, well, what does that make God look like? I don't think we can go down that route. I don't think that God has lost humanity to evil. I don't believe that. Now, if your child decides to walk different ways of yours, they're still your child. You don't have to pay for them. Humanity belongs firmly to the creator of this world. Nobody would even be able to breathe another breath without God saying, go for it. In fact, the, the Hebrew word Yahweh, uh, apparently the way that the uh, Hebrews would pronounce it, and they wouldn't because uh, they, it's the holy name of God. But if you would pronounce it, it would be more like taking a breath. Yahweh, Yahweh. Astounding that the first thing a human being is drawing a breath on this earth is pronouncing the name of God. And also, the last thing a human being is doing as they're drawing their last breath on their deathbed is pronouncing Yahweh just by breathing. So, God 
is on his throne. But what about ransom the other way? There's another theory, you know, it's got a big name. But this theory says, you know, that God is wrathful and is just, and in order to satisfy his justice, there has to be a price to be paid for the sins and wrongs that you have done and everybody else. So Jesus comes to save us from this wrathful God. What does that make God, you know? Somebody who's offering his son in order to sort out his own justice. Are you sure that's the way you want to go and the way you want to view God? If you look at that word ransom, you actually see something else. In the Greek, it talks more about loosening money, money to, to, to pay a price in order that somebody else can go free. It comes from that root that says to untie, to loosen something that was bound, to absolve someone from sin, to acquit. And I firmly believe that Jesus, by self-emptying himself unto death on the cross, he actually paid a high price in order to confront us with our silly games of thrones, in order to uncover the mimetic desire that we kind of fall and pray to, in order to show us that things are completely different in the kingdom of God. And the work on the cross has dealt with the sin forever and ever. So, yes, there is forgiveness from God's point of view. But let's not get lost in kind of ways of where is God in this, where is the devil in this. But let's stick firmly to, you know, to the fact that God wants to, to make you see something. There's a bigger, bigger system behind our sinful ways. And that has to do with power and authority and the way we, observe, uh, we, we deal with it. One has to make a distinction between the sacrifices, sacrifice of others and sacrifice in itself, you see. I think Jesus really finished the system of sacrificing. And the world is still going down that route. You know, somebody has to go. Somebody has to be responsible. One mistake and out you go. And if we don't have the one that did the mistake, we'll find one, a scapegoat. I'm sure we'll find somebody. And all will focus on that one person or that one people group. And then it's the Muslims or it's the Christians or it's the Jews or somebody. And we'll focus on them. And all our violence, all our anger will go onto them and then we'll be free for another period of time. And Jesus says, finished. Giraffe form formulates the famous uh, part from the uh, letters to the Hebrews by saying, Christ says to the Father, You wanted neither holocaust nor sacrifice. Then I said, Here I am. I prefer to sacrifice myself than sacrifice the other. God says, If nobody else is good enough to sacrifice himself rather than his brother, I will do it. Therefore I fulfill God's requirement for man. I prefer to die than to kill. But all other men prefer to kill than to die. Jesus took our violence upon himself in order to expose and disarm our violent ways and of running this world. This is an important message, the way we deal and dish out authority. How do you look at the people in your team? How do you look at the people that you are employing if you're an employer? Are there human resources? 
to be used like anything else, like water, light, whatever you need to produce, whatever you want to produce? Or do you see them as the end and not the means? How do you deal with your colleagues? How do you deal with your family? Are they there to serve your agenda, your business, your heart's desires? What about your wife or your husband? These are important questions, but in the light of Jesus and what he is saying here, he's wanting to open our eyes. You know, sometimes our eyes are very heavy. Takes our lids and goes, I want you to see something. There's a mechanism at work here. And on the cross, I've come to uncover it so that you can be free from it. And he's actually set us physically free from it. So what does authority in the kingdom look like? What does it look like? Well, it looks like learning to touch others at the level of the heart. You see, if people are the end and not the means, just think about it. What can you take with you into heaven? What are you going to take with you? Your stocks and shares? Your favorite surfboard? Don't know. Don't think so. What do you take is yourself and your relationships. Because you're going to meet a lot of people. A lot of people who've gone before you. And you then meet a lot of people who come after you. Hopefully they're not coming after you <laughs> in heaven. But generally, you know, that's what you're taking with you. So whatever business you're doing, just imagine if the success of your business would not be how much profit you make, but how much you contribute to the healing of creation and the people around you. Now, that would be something to report to your shareholders. This year, we haven't made a huge amount of earnings, but we've blessed a lot of people, and we've given a lot. We've been generous, and we've been furthering a lot of people. We've been training folks. And generally, our staff is the most happy staff in the universe. Now, who would be excited about that? I can see it in your eyes already. <laughs> it's exciting, I tell you how to further others. That's the way that Jesus shows us to actually use our authority in being present to people the way they are, not the way you want them to be. We're not here to change people, not at all. That's not our job. We're here in order to be present to people as one brother to another. You see, celebrating the differences, listening to the pain of others' lives, to the cry of the rejected, to the pain and yearning of, of your own heart even. That's what authority in the kingdom looks like. To sense and reveal and nourish this divine spark that is there in every single person. I believe it's not about religion at all. I couldn't care less what you believe. You can be a Buddhist here this morning, fine, be a Buddhist. But I still want you to know the person, Jesus Christ. And once you get to know him, maybe your eyes will open to a few of the dynamics of the kingdom of God. And that will change your life radically, completely and utterly. So it's not about uh, the way we live our religion. It's not about you know, what we have as goals. It's about learning about the true authority. In Ephesians 2, verse 4 to 7, I'm just going to read that quickly. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's not about finding a place on the throne anymore. What Jesus is saying is, you have got a place in my heart already. You are included in the dance of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and all of humanity. I believe that I've been saved 2,000 years ago. My eyes started opening for that many years ago, 1978. That's when I finally got it. But you know, Jesus saved me 2,000 years ago. I was his already. I just didn't get it. And it's out there, guys. The people that, that don't know Jesus, they are saved. It's just the fact is they don't know it yet and they don't participate in it. And that's what we've got to tell them. Invite them. Participate them. Because if you don't know that you're saved, you're sure going to drown, aren't you? And that's the problem. So, understand your place of immunity as you are seated with Christ in heavenlies. There's no fear, no fear of pain, no fear of dying. And if you don't have any fear of dying, you don't have any fear of suffering. And that puts you into a place of learning to exert proper authority. If you're not afraid of dying, well, who can push you off your place? Nobody can. You don't have to be afraid anymore. I often think about Lazarus and his story, you know, when he died and Jesus rose him from, raised him from the dead. And then the Pharisees got so mad that they thought about how can we kill Lazarus because his, his testimony is getting too many people believing in Jesus. Yes. That was good. And so they think, how can we kill him? And I think, well, if you kill him again, he's just going to be raised again. You've got another miracle on your hand. And that's the problem with dead people. So if you're dead in Christ already, you're not going to be intimidated by anybody. In other words, what he was beginning to make possible was for us to begin to live as if death were not, and therefore for us not to have to protect ourselves over against it by making sure that we tread on other people. And that's important. That's what Alison says. I'm just quoting here. This is so important for us to understand. We can live as death were not. We are free from treading on other people, but we are all about making other people's eyes shine. And if they're not shining, you have to ask yourself, how am I living that other people's eyes don't shine? Why don't they shine? What am I doing here? And God is actually not letting us be part of this kingdom of the downward spiral, as somebody called it. But he is saying, you know, you're living in a, in a different world. You're living in a world of shared commitment, of open-heartedness, of contribution, of looking after one another, of making each other shine. And that's the way to give out authority and to lead and to serve everyone. Now the disciples were pretty amazed after hearing all this. And Jesus finishes the sentence and then goes off and heals a blind man. Now what does that say to you? He begins the whole thing by saying, see... Then he talks about 
authority in how to use it, and then he goes and heals a blind man. I believe that God wants our eyes to be wide open to the kingdom reality of how to deal out authority and live it, and you'll see there's something great changing in this world. If you start leading your company like this, if you start being like this to your colleagues or your, your, your friends in, in college or wherever you're at, you'll see a difference. People will be drawn to you, or better to say to Christ in you, because of what they see. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your kindness in, in coming to earth and being among us as, as one like a human being that you've become human in order to feel what it feels like, to, in order to show us how to live, and in order to be present among us and show us what it means to be connected to the Father all the time. I thank you that you didn't let go of this connection at any point. I thank you, Jesus, that you've shown us in such an attractive way how to, how to live relationship in the context of your kingdom. And that this kingdom is reaching far beyond these church walls, but they're just, your kingdom is everywhere, God. And every time, you know, we, we hear from your throne and the way that you are dealing with this world, you know, every time we're loving someone, every time we're generous, every time we're, you know, dishing out life-giving commitments, we can almost hear heaven applauding and going, that's the way to go forward. Go for it. And God, I, I thank you for everyone in this room. There are people here in responsibility over others. There are people here who are learning and who want to be in places of authority. And that's a good thing. But Lord, I thank you that you're showing us and raising us up to be people of the kingdom who live authority from, uh, from underneath, who bring others forward, who carry other people on their shoulders. I thank you, God, that you're helping us doing that. And so I pray that you will equip us with your Holy Spirit and give us every instrument and every gift we need in order to do this efficiently. Thank you that you've delivered us from the fear of death, from the fear of suffering, and that we never have to fear to drink our cup, the cup where we give up ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. Amen.